You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures they just have everything that you could possibly want plus leon their owner is an amazing dude he uh, he's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need and uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 young street so you gotta go down you gotta check out their merchandise sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games some magic the gathering stuff they're doing championships all the time you've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 young street and tell them aaron sent you listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. You can follow us on all social media at SpeechBubblePod. With me today is one of the busiest Canadians in comics not named Jeff Lemire. (laughs) He is basically really huge. He's from Toronto. Uh, You know him best right now for Avengers No Road Home. Uh, He's also done Avengers No Surrender. He's done Wayward. He's done Skull Kickers. Uh, He's working on uh, Savage Sword of Conan coming up, Invincible Iron Man. Uh, But he comes to TCAF, uh, we're recording this on TCAF Weekend, to promote his digital comicsology exclusive, uh, Stone Star. So we're going to get all into that and talk about his career. Welcome, Jim Zub. How are you, Jim? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, So yeah, so we got a lot to cover. We're not going to cover it all, obviously, but uh, before we get into your work, uh, I just want to get into uh, how you grew up. Where did you grow up? What was your growing up life like? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in Oshawa, you know, just outside of Toronto, Um, pretty middle of the road, middle class home life. My dad uh, taught high school biology and my mom stayed home to raise my nerdy brother, Joe and I. Nice. Yeah. 
And we we grew up on, you know, comics, cartoons, and role-playing games. That was our jam. What were the kinds of cartoons, the kinds of comics that you were into? Um, I mean, when I was really young, you know, I would watch, like, uh, uh, Rocket Robin Hood, uh, you know, Looney Tunes, things like that. As I got a little bit older... You know, that was sort of the, the time of, of uh, the G.I. Joe cartoon and Transformers and all that stuff, like right smack in the middle of it. So G.I. Joe was kind of my thing. And that was actually how I got into comics first. I would read like Spider-Man in Electric Company magazine or I would see, you know, uh, superhero comics around. But the first comic I started really collecting was was the G.I. Joe comic that Marvel put out. And so I probably I, my first issue must have been like issue five or six and then I tracked back and and started collecting forward and just through all the house ads and all the exciting stuff that I saw in you know kind of the the comic shops I would go to I started collecting Spider-Man from there so I collected Amazing Spider-Man oh geez like early to mid 80s all the way through to the early to mid 90s like monthly Amazing Spider-Man for a while I was getting Amazing Spider-Man Spectacular Spider-Man and Web of Spider-Man like I was obsessed that's interesting so when I first started collecting comics it was 1995 and I started uh, by figuring out what was the you know comics that I picked up during childhood and mm-hmm. what were the most of what issue and it turned out to be Spider-Man so I entered right smack dab into the clone saga oh man so that that's yeah. when I was out like that's when I was leaving <laughs> collecting comics uh, yeah I think my last couple issues of Amazing Spider-Man might have been right around the time that Carnage first started showing up but I collected all the way through all the original Hobgoblin storyline stuff and. Um, uh, you know, the, the gang war stuff that happened and then eventually McFarlane coming on board. I was, I was in for all of that stuff. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So how did you go from being like a fan and into somebody who wanted to do this? Um, it was weird because to me growing up, I didn't think comics was a viable occupation for a Canadian kid. I mean, I, I knew ostensibly that, you know, guys like Dave Sim were doing Cerebus or, you know, there were people in Toronto that were making comics, but they weren't necessarily doing, you know, Marvel stuff or things like that. And to me, it felt too big a goal. Like the only people who could make it in comics were either people who lived in New York or Los Angeles or were brilliant and British. And I was none of those things. And so to me, it was more about... Um, I wanted to have a creative career, and so my focus turned originally to animation. So I went to uh, Sheridan for classical animation. I got into the animation industry, worked on some TV animation stuff, and that was originally where I was kind of focusing my attention. The idea that the hundreds of names that go up on the credits of a show, I could be one of those tiny little names scrolling by. That seemed like a very reasonable goal for me. Um, it wasn't until later that I discovered, you know, web comics, uh, that, that I really even thought there would be a way I could sidestep a bunch of the kind of, the, the lack of publishing knowledge that I had. When you entered animation, was it still like drawing animation yes. or was it getting into 3D animation? I was literally the last year of, uh, at Sheridan that shot on film. And so we were still doing, you know, hand-drawn animation all the way. I mean, there was a 3D animation postgraduate course, but um, that wasn't where my interests lied. Like, I love hand-drawn animation. I love, you know, physical artwork. I do digital stuff, and I still draw. But to me, I love seeing the craft of beautiful pencils or inks or, or line. You know, it's just a, a wonderful kind of thing. 
And so I had been doing animation work and a lot of the stuff I was working on was pretty, you know, low end kids cartoons and, and really fast deadline kind of production stuff. And it, um, you know, you're a cog in the machine as much as it's fun. And the, the group of people you're working with is really fun. The work is not something you generally get a lot of time to take pride in. And so in the evenings, I started making my own comic just as a creative exercise. Um, I had been reading a lot of web comics online. Um, there were guys like Scott Kurtz and, and the Penny Arcade guys and other people that were starting to, they were posting their work online and building up a fan base and an audience for it. Um, and, and so that seemed really neat to me because you could kind of sidestep all the things I didn't understand about publishing and distribution and printing and all that stuff. And so late 2001, I did about 12 pages of a comic that was called The Makeshift Miracle. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was different. Like a lot of the stuff that was being put online at that point was um, like Saturday morning, not Saturday morning, um, like Sunday comic strip kind of stuff. Like it was a gag strip, you know, three or four panels or six panel gag strip. Right. And I wanted to tell a dramatic story, something with a beginning, a middle and an end. And I just started posting pages. I would post them up three pages a week. And some of them were good and some of them were weaker. I was literally teaching myself Photoshop as I was going. I hand-coded the HTML on the wow. first website because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I was posting it up, and I, it, was, it was a way for me to keep busy in the evenings. And I sent the link out to my friends and family who were, had email because back then not everyone had email. Uh, and, and slowly but surely, people were reading it and sharing it, and I was getting a pretty good response. It was a different time, you know, like 2001 on the internet's a different time. Yeah, totally. And, and so um, if people weren't following, if you stopped updating and people stopped checking their bookmarks, you could just vanish. You would just lose your entire audience. So I was taking a break for Christmas and I put up a, an update with a little news post that said, hey, I'm going away for a couple weeks for Christmas and New Year's. I'm not stopping updating. Please come back in the new years. I know not every page is great, but I'm doing the best I can. Like it was just this like classic, you know, artist winding themselves into a neurotic hole of, of, you know, fear. And about a couple, a couple hours later, I got an email out of the blue from Scott McLeod, okay. the understanding nice. comics guy. And he was like, the strip's great. Stop beating yourself up. Uh, don't worry. People are reading. Right. I was just like, oh, my God, Scott McCloud's reading my story. <laughs> awesome. And so we started emailing back and forth, and uh, he gave me his phone number, and I gave him a call. We had a wonderful conversation, and he really encouraged me to keep going and that I should start going to conventions. I should start meeting people. Um, and I didn't have a way of doing that. Like, like I, at the time, I had moved from Toronto to Calgary. I would moved from Calgary to Halifax. I was working in animation on, in Halifax at the time. And um, I couldn't afford a plane ticket. I didn't have a professional badge and I had nowhere to stay. Right. And McLeod hooked me up with a network of people who were all making web comics and, and excited about the potential. And um, so I, suddenly I had somewhere to stay. It was a different era. You got to keep in mind, Scott could literally vouch for me and get me a professional badge. Yeah. It's not like that now. No, no. Um, but I still didn't have a plane ticket and most of my credit cards were in bad, bad, bad shape. And I didn't, I couldn't take on the debt, but I told my brother about it. My older brother, Joe, uh, who's, you know, we both grew up on all this wonderful nerdy stuff. Mm -hmm. And he talked to my dad. My dad knows nothing, cares nothing about comics. 
But my brother tells him this is really important. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, and my dad, uh, my dad bought the plane ticket. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Where, where was your first convention? This is uh, San Diego Comic Con, two thousand two. Right? Heck of a first one. And at the time, I think the show might have, might have hit fifty thousand, sixty thousand people. And the general murmur was, it'll never grow bigger than this. <laughs> it can't possibly get bigger than this. <laughs> Little did they know. Little did anyone realize how insane things were going to be. And I got to meet all kinds of comic creators who I knew their work and people were very nice and they were really easygoing. It was, it, it was a totally different time, right? Like, uh, on the, the, I think at the time Thursday night was preview night. I don't think Thursday was a full day. Okay. And you could show up on preview night and the show was empty. People were literally setting up their booths. Wow. So I remember helping some professional schlep boxes into their booth and help them put up their banners and stuff because I'm there and they need some help and everyone's just like high-fiving and super relaxed. It, it's a different time, right? Yeah, before the celebrity, Before the stuff. movie stuff yeah. really, really took hold and all the insanity. It was wonderful. I mean, we had a really, uh, you know, it was an awesome time. Um, I made a lot of friends and just the kind of creative energy just built. And so I got back after that and I was really inspired. I'm like, I want to really make this a thing. So... I started making my own, you know, I kept making Makeshift Miracle, finished off the story in 2003, and um, started getting more freelance work, but not in comics. I was doing a little bit of illustration. I was doing a little bit of design stuff, just kind of whatever I could find. And I ended up- um, Still working in animation at the same time? I'm working time? in animation as a day job. Yeah. That ends up drying up. The studio I was working at was in really bad shape, so I moved back to Toronto with the intent to go back to school for 3D animation. Mm. A bunch of my friends were getting work in video games, and they were like, this is the hot spot. You got to get on board. I didn't want to, but I was like, well, I'll go where the financial stuff works. But I never ended up going to school for 3D. I signed up for a course at Seneca College. I was supposed to start that September. But that summer, while I was still waiting for school to start, I got a job at the Udon Studio. Uh. So Udon Entertainment is uh, a, a collective of artists that is also now a publisher, and they were doing artwork for Marvel and Hasbro and Capcom and all these different companies, freelance stuff. Mm-hmm. One of my friends that I went to school with and I worked in animation with, his name's Omar Dogan. We worked together uh, and he recommended me for a spot literally coloring comics. And so I got what was supposed to be a part-time job coloring comics at the Udon studio. Nice. So I colored reprints of Conan that um, Dark Horse was doing at the time because they had just gotten the license to Conan. Um, I was doing little spot illustrations and stuff like that. And I thought I would do that for a few months and then go to school in September. By the time we finished that summer, I was helping to organize projects at the studio. I was going to conventions and setting up and, and working with the gang. And my boss, Eric Coe, he said, please don't go back to school. I really, you know, like mm-hmm. having you here. Mm-hmm. And so I delayed going to school. I said to, to Seneca, look, I'm going to, can I delay my start till January? They said, okay. And then by that October, I knew I wasn't going back. Right. <laughs> and the weirdest part was uh, less than a year later, I would start teaching part-time at Seneca in their animation department for 2D animation. Right. So I, the joke is I was supposed to go there as a student. I ended up as a teacher. 
I was supposed to have a part-time job, and I stayed at the Udon studio for eight years. Mm-hmm. It was it was a wild you ride. You were doing, like, Street Fighter comics there. Yeah, the Udon studio was doing the Street Fighter series, and I was helping out with some of that, but not in writing at first. I was just doing, again, project management. We were doing a lot of licensing artwork for Capcom, so we would do card artwork or toy artwork or design work, just a little bit of everything. I did a lot of role-playing game artwork for companies like White Wolf and, and um, Wiz of the Coast and just everybody. Um, we were just doing tons of different projects, a lot of it under the radar. Um, but the studio had a regular writer, this guy, Ken Sui Chong. He was writing all the Street Fighter books. And we were supposed to do another mini series um, around a character named Ibuki, who's from Street Fighter 3. And Ken, I think in the original plan, Ken was going to write the book. And then his wife was having complications with her pregnancy and Omar, the artist, was ready to go. And so I said, well, I can write it. I know how to write a script and I'm super excited. And uh, Eric at the Udon studio was like, well, put in the proposal. You know, if Capcom approves it, then sure. Did you just learn how to write based on your work with webcomics? Um, well, I wasn't writing a script for my webcomic because uh, okay. I was doing all the artwork on it as well. It was really – I learned how to do script format when I took a year of film okay. at Humber and just reading up on this stuff. I was really passionate about it and looking at what Ken had done as well. Right. And so I did the, the series proposal and it came back. Everyone was super excited to do it. Um, I'd co-written, uh, a book at Udon. We did the a book based on Exalted, which is a, a, a white wolf RPG. I'd done a little bit of writing here and there for these little promotional projects that the studio put together. And all of a sudden I was writing this mini series oh, wow. and it went well and everyone had a really good time. And right around the same time, I did a story for, uh, an image anthology called Pop Gun. So Joe Keating was the editor on it, and he really liked one of the artists at the Udon studio named Chris Stevens. This is like a rambling history I'm going through here. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, Chris had done all sorts of amazing artwork for the Udon studio. Joe wanted him to do a story for Pop Gun. Chris assumed he was going to have to write someone else's story, and all of a sudden they're like, do whatever you want. Yeah. And he comes to me and he goes, oh, my God, they want me to do whatever I want. And so we brainstormed a story. I mean, I just told him, what do you want to draw? What do you think is funny? Um, and the next thing I knew, I was writing a 10-page story for this anthology. Chris illustrated the, the heck out of it. It was gorgeous. And Eric Larson, who was the publisher at Image at the time. Yeah, Savage Dragon. Right. He was in charge of Image. He read the anthology and he said, this is one of my favorite stories in the anthology. If you guys want to make this a thing, you should pitch this as its own project. And that's where Skull Kickers started. Wow. So we pitched Skull Kickers, I think, end of 2008, maybe early 2009. And it launched in late 2010. But we had a different artist attached. Chris Stevens would stay on as the cover artist. But uh, eventually Edwin Huang would come on and draw the whole series with me. And we would do, eventually we did 34 issues. Wow. Yeah. And that got me on the map. All of a sudden people were, we were putting out work almost monthly. Like we would do a story arc and then a break and then a story arc. But um, all of a sudden people were like, oh, this book is fun. Oh, this book's got a little bit of buzz. I had come in just as Image was hitting a new wave. So books like Chew and Morning Glories Mm -hmm. were getting all sorts of buzz. And we got thrown in with that kind of pile of Exciting new image creators. So you know. is it a? It's a little bit after like Walking Dead and stuff. Oh like yeah, that. Walking and, Dead is and, now in production as a Invinci- TV show. Yeah, Inv- Invincible, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, the Walking Dead TV show came out 
like first episode premiered right after our first arc of Skull Kickers. Nice. Okay. I remember because we were thrown in with a bunch of articles like what other image books should be TV shows right. because Walking Dead was this new, new crazy thing. Right, right. So you're you're there for like their current boom, the beginning right. of their current yeah, boom. Yeah, right on the rise, the rising waves happening. Right. And so guys like Curtis Weeb, he had done a, this spy book. I've Gosh, I forget the name of it. Um, Charles Soule had done this book, 27. Like all these creators who you know their work now. Yeah, Saga is a thing. Saga's not a thing oh, yet. Okay. Saga's years later. Okay. So it's a weird time, right? Okay, and yeah. we sort of rode that wave mm. up. Skull Kickers got me on the map for a lot of people. Uh, from there, I would start doing, I did um, uh, a book called Pathfinder that's based on a role-playing game. Did that for Dynamite. Um, I knew the the people at Paizo who had done the Pathfinder role-playing game for years. I'd done some artwork for them back in the days. Uh, and and so they got me to do their comic series. And that really kind of secured me as Jim's a good sword and sorcery guy. Right. Um, and that's just because your Dungeons & Dragons background and that kind of stuff? Yeah. I'd, I'd done a bunch of artwork for the role-playing game industry. I'd gone to a bunch of those shows and hung out with those people. I knew the material. And I was also a comic writer. Mm-hmm. One of the problems that I think some of the – the, the role-playing industries had with comics is sometimes they'll get writers who are comic writers who don't know the lore or they'll get novelists who don't know how to write comics. Right. So they're writing these incredibly dense, dialogue-heavy kind of things. And and I was sort of able to split the difference for them really well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a ton of fun. And it was just a wild kind of rising tide. Uh, I did a, a couple small projects at DC. I did a Legends of the Dark Knight story. Um, this, I, right around the same time, because I was teaching part-time, I started doing these articles on my blog all about the comic industry. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I did like how to pitch, uh, you know, how I write a script, how publishing works and all this kind of stuff. And those kind of in comics went a little bit viral. People would share them around or it was a lot of demystification for people. And that kind of got me on the radar for other folks. Mm-hmm. So this wonderful guy named Hank Canals over at um, DC, he reached out. He was in charge of all their digital first books that they were doing. And he said, do you want to write a Batman story? I was like, of course. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes, I do, sir. Uh, so I wrote this, this two-part Batman story. And that got me a bunch of traction mm-hmm. with different people as well. So it was just that slow climb from mm-hmm. there. Like... By the time we hit 2012, I'm doing a bunch of uh, freelance writing for other people. By 2013, like I've stepped away from the Udon studio and I'm just writing like crazy. And so from there, it's a pretty quick, I get my first Marvel gig. I'm doing a bunch of stuff in Marvel's special projects division, which is not the sexy in continuity monthly books. This Isn't is, that the advertising? It's advertising. Yeah. So I was doing literally candy comics mm-hmm. and I was doing like insert books that would go in cereal boxes. And um, I actually did a run. It's such a weird thing in the UK. There's something called Spider-Man magazine. Okay. And so it's a magazine for kids. I think two thirds of the magazine is like mazes and games and articles and then there's an, a 12-page comic, original comic in every issue. And it's always themed the same. So if the story's about the vulture, then all the games and puzzles are the vulture. Right. And all the articles are about the vulture and Spider-Man and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they would give me these marching orders. They'd say, we need a 12-page story with Venom. We need a 12-page story with Electro. We need a 12-page story with the Scorpion. And I would just write it to spec. 
And as long as it followed the continuity of the cartoon, which at that time was Spider-Man Web Warriors, okay, uh, I was good to go. Nice. And so I was doing 12 pages of Spider-Man a month. I did that for almost two years. And watching the cartoon? Like yeah. To, to... Just, I would have the cartoon as reference. Nice. They would send me episodes and everything. Cool. And so that was a really good way to show that I could do the character voices that I, you know, could hit the mark. A 12-page story, being able to do a introduce a concept and a villain, sometimes team them up with another hero and pay it off in 12 pages. Every panel has to be important. Right. There's no fat on that story. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so when I finally started doing regular superhero stuff, having 20 pages felt like relaxing. Yeah. It's like, oh, we got time for real <laughs> slow boil kind of drama here. I can uh, I can really ease into this, nice, you know, nice. <laughs> because I was used to doing these these 11 and 12 page like, you know, hit the ground, got to get the action going, got to pay this thing off. So it was a really uh, amazing experience. The The gentleman who was editing a lot of those was a guy named Bill Roseman. Okay. Um, and Bill has now moved on. He's the head of Marvel Games. Wow. So whenever you see, like that Spider-Man, Spider-Man. PS4 game, yeah. he's the, the head guy. On wow. It. So um, Bill and I became really good friends and we were always chatting about stuff. He brought me on to do the Disney kingdoms books. I did uh, the figment series. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that. And that was a lot of fun and did better than people expected and sort of surprised people. Mm-hmm. The Disney fans were really, uh, you know, really obsessed about it in a, in a lot of fun ways. It was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of got my, a perch at Marvel. And then when Bill was leaving to go get his new position, uh, as the head of Marvel games, he put in a really, really good word for me uh, with Tom Brevoort. Okay, cool. So Tom Brevoort's yeah. the the top editor. That's not the editor in chief. I forget what his actual title. He's like mm. a VP of publishing or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And he's the head of the Avengers group. Yeah. And so he reached out to me and said, "Hey, you know, Bill spoke really highly of you. Let's see if we can do something together." And that would eventually turn into me doing Thunderbolts. Yeah. And that's where you got into the Avengers thing. And that's, I've literally been working for Tom on a variety of projects, almost, I think, unbroken. Like, I don't think there's a month that's gone by where I haven't done something for Tom. And Champions is under that, too, Yeah, Champions is under the same Mm, banner, Uncanny Avengers, both Mm. the Avengers Weekly books. Other stuff, too, like the Avengers one-shot for Monsters Unleashed. Yeah. Just everything. Yeah, totally. I've done some X Men stuff as well. Yeah, the Wolverine hunt. Yeah, hunt for, uh, hunt for and Wolverine. I did one of the Secret Empire United one shot mm-hmm. that had a bunch of X Men in it. But but the vast majority of my work has been in the Avengers office. Yeah. ever since then, amazing. And Iron Man's in the same office now too. So yeah, because I yeah. guess he's a member of the Avengers. Yeah, so. yeah that's sort of his core umbrella. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance everything? Like this whole time, <laughs> you're you're teaching. Yeah. What is what is your day? Like, like it sounds like you like to be busy. I do. And how do you make everything work? It's a little bonkers. Um, my wife is the most patient woman that has ever lived. Uh, we don't have any kids, which obviously makes a huge difference. Um, I get up, I answer a pile of emails. I go to school. I teach, uh, I'll tuck into my office at the school and I'll answer some emails. I usually eat my lunch at my desk answer more emails, sometimes even get a little bit of writing done. Um, there's been a really transformative change up at the the campus where I teach at Seneca. We're on the York University campus and we have a subway stop now. Oh, nice. I used to have to grind out and drive and find parking and, you know, 
uh, spend my life on the road trying to go back and forth during rush hour. But now I just jump on the subway and I throw a bunch of my reference stuff I need, like all my comics, on my tablet. And then I just read on the subway, which is great. It's and I perfect. literally have a little notepad and I'm taking notes. Um, I get sent – a bunch of the writers at Marvel get sent literally every comic that Marvel's putting out in a PDF so we can keep up on continuity. Right. And so I'll read, you know, 70 Marvel books on my tablet as I'm going to school. Oh, man. Hope and, the brightness settings are right. Yeah, right? Just slowly <laughs> burning my retina away uh, and taking little notes where needed about stuff that may or may not tie into things I'm working on. Um, and then I get home. I'll have dinner with my wife, Stacy, And then most weeknights, I zip back up to my office at home and uh, I'll write from around 7 to, you know, 11 or midnight. Wow. So I try and put in like a half day of writing almost every weeknight. Nice. And then I'm doing conventions or occasionally having a life. Yeah, on, on the weekends. Yeah, sometimes. And some weeknights, you know, we'll hang out and do stuff as well. It just depends on, on the schedule. Speaking of continuity and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reading uh, No Road Home and – no surrender. Yeah, uh, you, it's a weekly book with like a bunch of other writers. Two how other do, writers. Yeah. How do you how do you balance that? How do you make it sound like a cohesive voice when you have so many cooks right. in the kitchen? So, to so speak? for both those projects, we had the benefit of planning them out well in advance. So I actually flew down to New York, and Al and Mark flew in, and we did a summit day at the office. So it was Tom Brefort and Alanis Smith and Mark Wade and Al Ewing and I sitting in a boardroom jamming on story. So we literally have the menu cards out with the Sharpies and we're writing notes and big plot ideas and building the whole story out. So we're talking about where things are going to happen, what's going to pay off, who's involved. In the case of No Surrender, I think we had like 25 Avengers Mm-hmm. And we had, oh God, I think there was 15 or 16 villains. Like it was bonkers. And for both of them, you have a big continuity mission. Yes. Like there's yes. one mission for each of those it's books. It's pretty insane. Yeah. And we're trying to keep the whole thing, you know, cohesive. Yeah. We're carrying on plot lines from all the different Avengers books. We're paying off some of them as well. And so part of it was in the case of No Surrender, it worked really well because each of us came in with a team. I was already writing Uncanny Avengers. Al Ewing was writing U.S. Avengers and Mark was writing the flagship, the Mighty Avengers book. And so um, each of us have got our own cast of characters that we're mixing together. So it made it easy in the sense that I already had characters who I knew their voices. I knew their stories. I knew where I wanted them to go in the story. Mm -hmm. So if Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are doing stuff, well, I'm already writing them in Uncanny Avengers anyway. So I'll kind of take care of them in No Surrender. Right. Or if someone else is writing them in a scene, cool, I'll just give it a once over and make sure the dialogue sounds like Pietro and Wanda, you right. know? And that was really kind of the, the unofficial demarcation. Like this is my team. So yeah. I get the final say on how they act. So it's divided based on the characters you're working on already. Okay. And then we had a couple other characters we, we brought into the mix that weren't in the books. So characters like living lightning and, and things like that, where Al Ewing was the one who had some of the big plot payoffs for that character. So he would be the one that would kind of adopt 
you know, living lightning or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and that was just sort of the way we did it. With No Road Home, it was different because we were bringing a different kind of mishmash group of Avengers together. So again, we all kind of adopted characters based on where our passions were, mm-hmm. like which characters we felt like we had the best handle on. Um, just getting that cast drilled down was really tough because we wanted a much smaller cast than No Surrender. And so I think the first third of the day when we went to the Marvel office was us excitedly and arguing about who we wanted to be in the book. <laughs> and C.B. Sabolsky was in the room this time, and so was Tom Brevoort and Alana. And we all were throwing, you know, our, our weight around why this character should be in there, what cool things we could do with them, wouldn't this be great, and trying to prove to the rest of the room you know, why they were justifiable. And meanwhile, is Tom and CB telling you, like, this is what we want you to get accomplished? By yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about both of them, Tom's so good and CB's great about, like, we want a great story, first mm-hmm. and foremost. Like, the, the, the commercial, the Avengers are getting this promotional boost thanks to the movies. So people are going to be looking at the book. Let's make a great story that's going to last don't worry about matching lockstep with movie stuff because the comics come first, mm-hmm. you know, years and years later, civil war shows up in the comics, but civil war had to exist in, sorry, in the movies. Uh, but civil war had to exist in the comics first. Right. Right. So let's make, I'm not saying this stuff gets turned into movies. Absolutely. But l- let's make stuff that is exciting that hopefully inspires, you know, future cool story stuff in the movies. Right. And so they encourage us to, think outside the box to be big and bold to do stuff that don't worry about the special effects budget because that's not the point it's about make it crazy make it fun make it epic make it worthy of earth's mightiest heroes and that was sort of our goal you know throughout the process so do the the big things that happen in that comic happen as a result of where you want the story to go or where they want you to take this yeah one of the things that's most interesting for me is watching the fan analysis of things like No Road Home, where people are assuming we're getting our marching orders from the mouse or something, and they're like, oh, I can see why you guys did that, and like wagging their fingers at us. And I'm laughing because the honest truth is, um, sure, we have to get approved in the broader sense editorially, but everything we came up with is in the room. Like, no one has got this, uh, in, in No Surrender, Axel Alonso came in and said, hey, we want to bring Bruce Banner the Hulk back because right. he was dead. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have a way of doing that within the story? And Al Ewing was like burning up excited because his Hulk is his favorite. And he's like, I would love to write the Hulk. We have to find a way to do it. And he pitched us essentially in the room some of the core concepts that are now the Immortal Hulk book. Right. And we all loved it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, that. So in that case, I guess there was an editorial mandate like, you guys want the Hulk? Yeah. And we took it. Right. But they didn't tell us how to do it. They didn't tell us where it was going to go. Right. Uh, none of that. Mm-hmm. In this case, for No Road Home, um, Tom said, we've got an interesting concept. We've got the rights to Conan the Barbarian. Um, are you guys interested in bringing Conan into the Marvel Universe? And my sword and sorcery love and Conan love and heart was like bursting. Yes, I will find a way. Yes, we will make it work. So that's it. That's the only marching orders we were given was literally, guys want Hulk? Guys want Conan? That was it. Everything else was us. Nice. So we came up with what was at stake. We came up with the villain. We came up with the payoff. We came up with the dramatic turns for the characters and the new 
kind of, uh, in some cases, transformations of them. And that's all us. Mm-hmm. So when I read these articles where people are all like, oh, the Greek pantheon's looking a lot like the Eternals and there's an Eternals movie coming. I wonder if, and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I genuinely, <laughs> and I'm not saying that to be coy. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like that is not us subtly spinning anything. That's us in the room going, man, these Greek gods look really boring. Mm. If we're going to kill them anyways, let's bring them back and make them look awesome. And do you know what looks awesome in Marvel books? Kirby stuff. Yeah. Kirby crazy sci-fi. Totally. So let's put some Kirby crazy sci-fi in there. Mm-hmm. Done. Well, guess what Kirby crazy, crazy sci-fi stuff looks like? The Eternals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So so I get <laughs> where people are attaching these together. Right. But they're really completely disconnected. <laughs> it's like the conspiracy theorists with the you know, string oh, and the board absolutely, and all that sort right? of stuff. I mean, it's fun. I love being told that I'm like – the puppet of a corporate master or something. But I was like, no, that's really not the case. Nice. So then once you've worked out the meeting and where it's going to go, what's your daily responsibility just to put out the scripts that you Well, yeah. I mean, just putting out the scripts (laughs) is quite a task. We decided, so some weekly books in the past have been built around the idea of one writer does an entire script and then the next writer does an entire script. And we wanted a much more organic feel. We didn't want you to be able to tell, hopefully, who wrote what. And so we break each issue into we – we page pace it. So we break it down into scenes. This is a four-page scene. This is a five-page scene. This is six pages of fighting or whatever. And then depending on what the core characters are for that scene or how passionate we are about particular moments in the story that we came up with, we get assigned those scenes. Sometimes people will say, mine. Like, give me that. Right. That is clearly me. And other times it's sort of like a – who gets the poison chalice? Okay, you have to do the really hard scene this issue. Oh, okay, you know. Nice. And then you script out your pages. We Frankenstein monster those three chunks of script together, and they're sometimes broken up into sections. Um, and you check to make sure it's like cohesive. Right, and, and then we reread it, go, whoo, some of these dialogue <laughs> transitions are really rough, you know, or hey, uh, I noticed that I do sound effects and you don't, and that feels really <laughs> weird. And so we had to sort of figure out the rules of the road, you know, how it was going to work. Right. And then you do a quick scrub over for dialogue, you know. So does vision sound like vision all the way through? You know, does uh, uh, Monica Rambeau seem consistent from scene to scene and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was really an interesting process. In No Surrender, the very first time I'm rewriting Mark Wade dialogue, I'm like, I'm the worst person. <laughs> Mark's going to blow his top. Oh no, what's going to happen? And everyone was so cool and so chill. I think we were more nervous early on because we didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. So it was like, the, I don't want to, I don't want to step on, like, I don't want to be a jerk. And you're like, quadruple checking is it okay if i make a slight revision and eventually we all just were like this isn't getting anywhere we got to just like fix stuff yeah so we just got a lot more uh aggressive in a good way because it's under the gun right like it's a weekly book yeah well we were doing it well in advance so the art teams could build it but even still we were doing a script every two weeks yeah I mean, it seems like there's more and more comics coming out. It's not just monthly anymore. It's like every two weeks now. Yeah, I think it's the the binge-watching mentality is a big part of these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's changed the way that people consume media. And so for me, that feels very um, – you know, it's exciting because on a weekly book, people aren't forgetting plot points. The momentum's really strong. The social media conversation is constant. And you're really enjoying the ride. The weirdest part is that you've worked for eight or nine months on those 16 or 10 issues and they're gone. They're mm-hmm. just, 
Yeah. Out the door. <laughs> There's another one. There's another one. There's another yeah, one. Yeah, on like, to the next project. When you, when you get to the proofing and you're literally proofing one of these off to the printer every week mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my God, it's just, it's slipping out of my fingers. It's gone. It's gone. The next one's out. And you're just like, oh geez. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting though. It's a really fun, you know, it's a fun roller coaster. So you can't be really too precious about what you're doing. Like you have, you have so many projects that yeah. like, oh my God, like I just have to keep going and doing my stuff. Yeah. And you, I'm still super passionate about what I'm doing, but, um, one of the things I try and explain to people is that when you have real deadlines, like having creative deadlines when no one is paying you money or, or you don't have a corporate master can be hard because no one's forcing you to get it done. Right. When, when my editor's looming and the artist needs to get started and I'm the first part of the train to get this thing out of the station and, and you got to start working. If I don't do my job, no one in this creative team eats. Yeah. Man, you get stuff done because yeah. you're like, I am responsible. Like I need to do this. Plus and so, I have a day job. Plus I have a day job. I mean, so, you're you're like director of animation now, right? Yeah, I'm the coordinator of the program. So, which is good in the sense that I've been doing it a while and I know what, what it entails. So most of it's iterative from year to year. But it's still it's a responsibility. Um Do you keep office hours? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got thankfully the course runs quite smoothly. So those can also be hours where I can steal away a little bit of writing or responding to emails from Marvel or whatever. Nice. <laughs> but, um, but honestly, it's like, it, it, people ask me about writing block and it's like fear pushes me past writing block. Cause it's like, if I, if I have a four hour chunk of time and I need to get X number of pages done and I don't get that done, my whole schedule is going to destroy itself. Yeah. Better get it done. Yeah, yeah. Better, better get off the internet. Better get off social media and write those damn pages. Yeah, like being behind is got to be like the worst feeling. It's the ever. worst feeling, you know. So I've written on planes. I've written in hotels. I've written anywhere where it needs to get done. And it's not to say it's easy because it's not. And there's times where you definitely look and you go, "Man, I wish I had the luxury of a little more time, a little more reflection." Right. But there's something to be said for. Um, getting it done mm-hmm. and, and looking on the other side and going, wow, okay, we've made all these strides. And the more you do it, the more you know the characters. Yes. So the less you need to be like, yeah, what it, would this person say? Absolutely. And, like and, and, and every creative team, you build up the relationship. The yeah. first few issues are always rough where you're trying to figure out each other's strengths or how you communicate. You know, like Stephen Cummings and I did Wayward together. Mm-hmm. We did 30 issues at Image. And a week after Steve handed in the last page of Wayward, he started on his first issue of Champions. Wow. It was like we never stopped. Right. We were the same creative team. Mm-hmm. I just had to loop in my editor now. Yeah. You know, and that that feels really good in the sense that we're really comfortable working with each other. But other times you're just trying to figure those bits out. Mm-hmm. So the longer a project goes, hopefully the better and smoother it gets as you go and the more confidence you have in what the other people are doing and how good they are at it. Right, right. And you've you've sort of mentored writers too. Like you worked with Andrew Wheeler on Freelance, right? Yeah. So Andrew and I are, are longtime friends here in Toronto and we game together and we have a big social circle together. And so Andrew's been writing on his own for quite a while. He's written prose stuff. He's written comics. Another castle. Right. Yeah. And so uh, we had this unique opportunity at Chapter House where they wanted to develop one of their characters and Andrew and I kind of built it out and built out the, what that supporting cast could look like and where it could go. And um, I wanted to, to work with him. 
and we had the chance to break the story together. He would do the first pass on the script and then I would come in and I would do rewrites or adjustments or we would talk about, you know, things we could polish uh, to take it to the finish line. And I think it was really, it was a neat process for me because I've done a bunch of co-writing, but this one, like previously, I felt like I was in Andrew's position. Like when I worked with Gail Simone on Conan Red Sonia, she was the marquee talent and I felt like I was the also ran. Right. Not that I was displeased to be there or anything like that, but you know, she was the one really driving the project. Yeah. And you, when you read stuff like that, it's like Gail Simone and yes, this absolutely. Guy. <laughs> right? And and that's cool. Yeah. And we had a really fun time on it. And that was my first chance to write Conan. And I absolutely love the way that book turned out. But in terms of essentially she was mentoring me, you right. know what I mean? Um, and so every co-writing situation is a little bit different. You know, no surrender was, I felt like I was the new, the new guy and Mark Wade's the, veteran of veterans right. and Al Ewing's like the amazing dude who's been in the trenches for years, crushing it on all these cool projects. And I'm the guy coming in going, Hey everyone, I'm really excited to be here. You yeah. know, like it was great. And, and what was so great about no road home was we got to prove a, it wasn't a fluke and B um, I felt like I was really not that I wasn't an equal partner in no surrender. I think I was just afraid. I was just afraid of not, not being, uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder with those guys. Right. And on No Road Home, we were all just like, here we go. Cool. We know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Even getting in that room again was like in jokes and, and comfortable, you know, our, we were comfortable to even riff on each other or make fun of each other because it was like, we've been there. We've, we've come through the gauntlet and come out the other side. Yeah, totally. And somehow we decided we're getting back on and we're going to do it again. Cool. Yeah. And you, with Andrew, you do a podcast called uh, Danger Dice Gang. Yeah, yeah. Which is back to the sword and sorcery thing. Big which, time. Which you do a lot. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Um, and how does like your love of Dungeons and Dragons like factor into, you know, stuff like Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, man. A lot of your sword and sorcery stuff. Where Honestly, Dungeons and Dragons is at the root of almost everything creatively for me. Like Dungeons and Dragons unlocked my creativity when I was a kid. It showed me that I could not just consume stories but create them. It gave me the confidence to speak up in a group of older people. Like I was the youngest at the table and all of a sudden I had a voice and I could engage them and they would take me seriously and I could make them laugh. I could entertain people. Um, and that was a, a game changer for me in, in so many different ways that I didn't realize at the time. And so both Sword and Sorcery and Dungeons and Dragons are such a primordial part of my love of storytelling. And so um, over the years, I've gone through phases of running games for my friends or just being too busy to, to play role-playing games. But, you know, with the, the current huge pop culture explosion of Dungeons & Dragons again, it's amazing to be involved with it. You know, I'm doing the official D&D comic at IDW. We just finished the Rick and Morty versus Dungeons & Dragons miniseries. Um, I've got more D and D projects that are going to be announced. Well, is having sort of Conan like yeah. you can take a lot of that and put it in big into time. Conan. You know the Conan stuff. I grew up reading those books, and he's one of my favorite literary characters. And this will be now the third time I get to get to work on Conan stuff. It's just it's unbelievable to me that the sword and sorcery stuff is now in vogue. Um, there was a time when I felt like I was going to get 
uh, um, pigeonholed as as the sword and sorcery guy. And I don't know why. I know looking at it now, I don't know why I was worried about that. But at the time, that felt like a disadvantage. Like, oh, great. If it doesn't have a dragon in it, they won't call me. But now everything's got a dragon in it. So it's like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Because it was kind of like a third tier genre. It felt in comics, it felt like an also ran. It felt like something that they did better in Europe. You know what I mean? Right, right. And that I didn't have, that the niche wasn't going to be an advantage for me. And now with like Game of Thrones, oh, everything. It's the thing. <laughs> it's, everything is, you know, Sword and Sorcery is so huge again. And D&D has never been bigger. And what's funny is like when I did the D&D book at IDW, I was the one who put a lot of upfront momentum to try and make that book happen because they hadn't done a D&D book in a while. I knew fifth edition was launching. This is 2014. And I thought, man, this is the time. I knew IDW had the rights to do the D&D book, but they weren't doing one. Mm. And I was like, this is the time. We got to do it. I built up some goodwill over there with the Samurai Jack comic series I'd done. Yeah. And so Ted Adams... Uh, at IDW and John Barber, we set up a conference call with Wizards of the Coast, and all of a sudden we were doing a new D and D comic. That's where I got, um, you know, I met. Well, I'd met him previously, but that's where Max Dunbar and I started working together. Yeah, which ties together well the, now. The, the, yeah, exactly. Because we we did um, we did uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and then he and I did uh, a few issues of Champions together. When they go to Weird World and do sword and sorcery oh, stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. And now we're doing Stone Star together. Yeah, Stone Star. I mean, that's a digital exclusive. Yes. Comicsology, um, and that's why you're coming to the Toronto Comics Arts Festival. Yeah. Uh, and I, I read it and it looks really awesome. Um, wh- what made you want to do something that's digital only? And for me, it was like, well, first of all, Max and I wanted to work together on a project. And so we had been talking about all kinds of different stuff over a good year, year and a half, maybe even longer about doing a book together. And then Chip Mosier from Comixology approached me and said, Hey, we've got this line called originals, Comixology originals. Um, it's sort of like this really broad, imprint you can do kind of whatever you want create your own project what is there a project you have in mind i showed them max's artwork i pitched out some ideas and this was the one that they got most excited about and then max and i just kind of went buck crazy on it and one of the things i said was look i have a really good relationship at image why would i not do my creator own books there right and so chip Mosier said look digital has some advantages and i was like okay prove it to me and so they were saying, you know, in terms of there's no limited print runs, there's no distribution bottleneck, we can do all kinds of cool sales and we can promote it in different ways. What about marketing? Like, you don't have the marketing strength. And that's the thing. I, you know, their comiXology is built on the back of Amazon and stuff like that as well. But I said, okay, what if we did like a Beyonce drop? Like, what if we literally announced this thing and released it the same day? Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, we haven't thought about doing it. I said, well, let's do it. If you guys promise me we can do that, I'll do the book with you. Because what I feel like is that people get super tired and worn out on the announcement. Now you can pre-order it. Five months later, you can get the book kind of endless promotion cycle where you have to beat the drum and beat the drum and beat the drum. People are like, I was excited the minute you told me about it. And now, look, there's a butterfly. I'm going (laughs) to go get that thing. And so for me, I was like, I want to grab their attention right now and I want to hold it. I want to get them excited and I want them to spontaneously go get it. And so Chip Mosier did me one better. He said, okay, we'll do that. We'll do the Beyonce drop and we'll have it on uh, Amazon Prime and Kindle Unlimited for free. 
So your reader base is going to be huge right from the get-go because people already have a subscription that they're paying for are just going to be happy to have new content. So what's the elevator pitch for Stone Star? Stone Star is a roving space station gladiatorial arena that goes from planet to planet, bringing entertainment and strife in its wake. Mm -hmm. So the old traveling circus concept, but imagine it's a planetoid kind of space station with with a huge arena so it's like this mobile entertainment station right and where it lands it does you know they, they'll do um gladiatorial combat mm-hmm. with aliens and robots and crazy things but they also pick up some of the uh let's say the less savory people on this planet and incorporate them into the the uh the system and there seems to be like sectarian galactic politics yes. happening in the yeah. background so there's multiple levels there's a there's a kid story so there's like a young boy named dale who's this scavenger orphan who's on the station because in order to keep this arena going you need to have all these infrastructure you need to have restaurants and people living their lives and building stuff and breaking stuff and you know the the ecosystem that is in and around the arena that right. defines their life mm-hmm. but He's sort of on the fringes of that. He's a scavenger who's trying to stay out of sight. And and he and his best friend, Kitso, are sort of in the pipes, you know, eking out their existence. And you get a sense that he has a past. He's been on the station for a little while and bad things have happened to him. Um, and at the same time, they, uh, uh, Dale and Kitso, come across one of the secrets of Stone Star. And that is the fact that the station isn't just this benign entertainment force they're actually scooping up normally criminals and stuff from a planet and basically being like yeah we'll take your bad people and we'll throw them in the arena but in this case they're taking literally the royal family from this planet and they're helping with a coup right they're basically saying whoops yeah yeah you know they disappeared they disappeared (laughs) oh what a shame (laughs) well we're on our way now and the station takes off and goes and so there's this kind of political backstory thing happening and there's also this fun sport, yeah. the gladiatorial arena and the ranks in the middle of it. So you've got a lot of different kinds of stories going on. You've got your kind of coming of age story with this young scrappy kid. You've got this political kind of story spinning out. And then in the center of it, all the conflict is built around the arena, whether that's fame or power or, you know, uh, visibility. And so there's these three kinds of things that define the story and keep it all really at a boil yeah and it's really fast yes. despite all the stories and it's five issues so. yeah so the first arc we want to do is five issues and that will pay off uh one major part of the story in a, in a hopefully very satisfying way for readers and opens us up to future stone star arcs awesome yeah. uh you excited for tcaf yeah always tcaf is one of my absolute favorite events every single year it's brilliantly good um, it's really, really well put together. Chris Butcher and Miles Baker and uh, everyone involved with TCAF is phenomenal. It is a world-beating show. Not, it, it's not about the size. It's not like Comic-Con with movies and toys. It is so singular in its focus. It's about books. It's about creators. It's about art. And it's free to the public, which is phenomenal. I, you know, I wish uh, 
every major city had such an awesome event in their backyard. Nice. Yeah. So on social media, where can people find you? Sure. Um, you know, how do they keep up with all the stuff? You're I know doing? it's a little crazy, right? Um, so I'm on, uh, it's really easy actually, just jimzub.com. So J I M Z U B.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Jim underscore Zub. I'm on Twitter and that's where a lot of comic people are at Jim Zub. Um, on my website, I've got the usual, you know, interviews and previews. I've also got tutorials about how to write comics uh, how to pitch your own stories, uh, some of the economics of creator-owned comics and everything else. You're breaking in. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm always available on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Tumblr, just all over the place. People want to get in touch with me or if they want to see what conventions I'm going to be at, they want to bring me uh, a book and they want me to sign it, it's my absolute pleasure. Or be one of his students at Seneca. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Come come learn how to draw and tell stories. It's uh, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I get to do these kinds of things and that, like, eight to 10 year old me is, is kind of living his best nerdy life. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in and we'll see you next time on speech bubble. This has been speech bubble. See you in the future friends. Never sleeps network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.